0: So I'm sitting here with Todd Zotkins, Todd Z-Man Zotkins. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: Man, there's no script. There's nothing here. There's no, You're not going off any cheat sheets or anything like that? I, I
0: don't have a cheat sheet. I don't have anything on my sleeve. I don't even have sleeves. I might be turning this interview you know, around and interviewing you. That's okay.
1: Um, <laughs> no, thanks for uh, having me on today. Uh, tell us a little bit about me. Um, well, I'm a uh, currently I'm a family crisis interventionist. I've been doing that for... Over ten years, and uh, I'm a licensed KDAC a drug and alcohol counselor. I do a lot of do a lot of talks at schools, like at colleges and high schools and other institutions. Um, Very cool. Primarily use this. Uh, there's a film out that uh, that is used as a, it's a good platform uh, talking point. It's called The Long Way Back, and it's on Hulu and Amazon and Google Play and all that good stuff. Tell us a little
0: bit a little bit about that. Um, the Long Way Back. What it's a, a road to recovery for yourself. Yeah, it's uh, it. You know, the film
1: captures a lot about my growing up in Long Beach and and how how uh, you know I got started on those prescription painkillers in in um, early 1990 after a back surgery, and it, it covers my descent into into that hell that I didn't know was waiting for me. But uh, we've got a lot of a lot of music in there. A lot of uh, uh, the soundtrack is killer. We've got uh, a lot of Sublime in there. I grew up with those guys and a lot of other local heroes, TSOL, and The Falling Idols, and The Vandals, and stuff like that. So, yeah, you know, the, uh, the story does capture, obviously, a, a bit about my recovery, but how we lost my friend, Brad Knoll, in 1996, and then years later, uh,
0: his son was struggling, and so uh, we're able to help get him clean and sober. Gotcha. So if you could pick one thing about your job, what you do today, that you love, what do you What do you love to do? I think the when it comes
1: to intervention, well, there's a because I do I do a bunch of different things, but when it comes to intervention, my, my favorite thing is that the fa- the whole family gets relief. Gotcha. That's that's one of the best things. It's not just, of course, I want the individual who's suffering to yeah. get to get you know off the things that are killing him or her. Yeah. At the same time, I want to see the the family uh, heal too.
0: Gotcha. Yeah, and and here at Balboa Horizons, you know. I was in admissions, I don't know if you knew that or not, but I used to answer the phones and I used to talk to these families in distress who call in just at the at their wits end, they've had enough, and so you get to go in, swoop in, and, and change them from a foundational standpoint and get everyone on board to recover together. Is that... Yeah,
1: that's that's a good point. You know, the the family needs to be educated about what does recovery look like. Yeah. You know, for their loved one, and it's not just you know so many people's perception is well, we you know we send my husband or my son or daughter away to treatment, and everything is just fine when he or she returns. Yeah, and that's just not the case. The family has their own work to do, and there's there's so many things from. Whether it's accountability, whether it's uh, looking for red flags or uh, for behavioral changes,
0: and there's just stuff that everyone needs to do to protect themselves. Yeah, um, and families even now are more vulnerable than ever uh, with the opioid crisis. Uh, I'm sure you've seen an influx in calls um, for your services for for young guys on you know opiates. Um, I mean, uh, the emergency rooms are inundated right now with with people. yeah more than a thousand a day. It's like the World Trade Center every day that people are dying.
1: Yeah, 179 people a day die from something stemming stemming from uh, opioids, whether it's heroin, fentanyl, fentanyl being the the lead perpetrator right now.
0: And I heard a grain of salt of fentanyl can basically kill someone.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah, th- th- that's an interesting point. But yeah, a few grains, uh, and I was actually taking. 2400 micrograms that a day for several years on top of the 14 to 18 Oxycontins a day uh, Yeah, if I took one of those fentanyl sticks today, it would probably kill me.
0: Wow So something that you guys might not know about me and Todd. We went to the same high school we Oh, you went to Wilson. We both went That's to Wilson right. High School in Long Beach. That's right. So, I mean I know what Long Beach was, was like for me growing up. How was it like for you? Jeez, <laughs> hell on wheels
1: for, for for most of us. I mean, you know, grew up in Belmont Shore and, and and you know, the culture there was groups of kids. Most of us surfed. Most of us loved all sorts of music, primarily like punk rock and you know reggae. The the, the blended sound from Sublime came later, but you know it was dominated by backyard parties. You know, uh, chasing girls. The, the stuff that. That young kids do, and it was all an environment where you could just ride your bike or your skateboard too. So it was like <laughs> you could have kind of over here a couple blocks, say, "Oh shit, so and so is playing right now." Okay, <laughs> and uh, summertime especially would just be dominant with that kind of stuff. Yeah. So
0: it was a good place to grow up for sure. And it was it was like that for me. I had my first drink in Belmont Shore, and I remember that vividly. Um, although it wouldn't have been my last drink. Um, being in Long Beach um, and doing what you do, I mean, it's a hub, I'm sure, for drug traffickers um, and even the recovery industry. So you, you get these calls, you get people coming in um, saying that they need help, they've, they've had enough with their son or daughter, and they need your services. Mm-hmm. You come in, you do an intervention on them, and then the family gets the help that they need if i'm understanding correctly, well the intervention is it's a two-day affair you know first and foremost and it takes a couple
1: days just to get ready for the pre-intervention so typically speaking you know what what, was today uh today tuesday tuesday today's tuesday so let's just say tonight would be a a pre-intervention where we prepare all the family and their loved ones about all the mechanics of what intervention looks like and there's a slew of things i don't for people listening or watching if you're thinking about trying to manage one uh, on your own without without a guide i don't recommend it it's yeah. often falls apart and blows up in your face more times than i can count so intervention is essentially a, a two-day process pre-intervention one day the intervention is typically the following morning mm-hmm. i don't ever ever conduct an intervention at night uh primarily because you want the person to the most lucid they can possibly possibly be even if they're whether it's their hungover or they're, or they're just getting their day started you don't want them when they're Totally out of their minds at night. Yeah. So there's a great deal of preparation involved. The pre-intervention typically is about a minimum of three hours, right
0: around four and a half to five hours of preparation, and then the next day is the intervention. Okay. And for those interventions, did you learn through uh, trial and error? Absolutely not. Okay. I was I was trained by a master interventionist, uh,
1: uh, a gentleman by the name of Jeff Jones, uh, who. uh, who left us just a few years ago but he was a wonderful guy who who taught me a lot about the right way to handle uh, families with a loving and compassion, compassionate element and um, that's the way we handle the person we're intervening on it's a it's a firm but loving and compassionate way of addressing a situation that is affecting everybody but yeah, uh, I run into people all the time who like say they're an interventionist. It's like, oh yeah, would you train under? It's like, oh yeah, just go and get people. It's like, for sure. Yeah, really. You yeah, know? it it took a, a a lot of training to learn how to do it the right way, and I think I think too that most any decent interventionist uh, develops his or her own style and time. Yeah. I work of some I work off of something primarily what's called the Johnson model of intervention, which is just a loving and kind approach, and people write intervention letters and. That kind of stuff. But there's a whole lot more to it than just writing a
0: letter. For sure. Yeah. So the families that are distressed, um, let's, let's say a family is watching right now. They have a loved one who's struggling with addiction. What kind of tips or ideas or thoughts or you know, motivation can you give them to not give up, to not give up hope because there is help available and it's out there if they're willing to put in the work to get it? Yeah, well, I can't tell you how many times, you know, families have
1: contacted me wanting to intervene mm-hmm. who don't follow through excuses are made with one of the maybe the weak links of the family members probably 75 percent of the time it's the mom who's contacting me every now and then the dad or brother or sister but it's almost always the mom who's reaching out and so um why do you think that is <sighs> i think that um first off god bless moms i love moms right. to pieces you know my mom's one of my very best friends in my little world today, and I think that um, moms are just so capable and so strong as human beings, and that I think you push them far enough, and they're the ones that ultimately just like let's we have to take some action here, and uh, you know when families are in distress and they and and they talk about doing something, talking is great, it's how you start, yeah, but doing is really critical too. So the follow through. So back to my point, you get people who call and they want to do something, and it's like they change their mind for, oh, maybe the, the big game or there's some big anniversary or some, oh, let's get through the holidays. And I've had a bunch of people who try to get through the holidays and their son's dead. Yeah, I'm not going to candy cut anything here. This is We're yeah. talking about a life or death. That's the real deal. It's the real deal.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and it's, and it's heartbreaking. Um, it is. I, I mean, I can't count how many people I've known that we've lost to addiction, and I'm sure you're the same. Um, being in recovery for as long as I've been in recovery and you, um, you've seen a lot of stuff. Um, you've gone through a lot yourself. Do you think that helps you relate more to the clients that you get to help? 110%. And, and uh, more than,
1: I'd say, 60% of the people I, I intervene on have got some uh, similarity to my story, if you want to call it that. Uh, hardcore prescription painkiller abuse opioid um, uh, use disorder is it dominates a lot of what I do. Mm-hmm. Um, but I want to kind of want to come back to something. We were talking about families in distress. And any time that, you know, first and foremost, when I get a call from a family, things are not going well. I don't get a call <laughs> to, to share with me that, you know what, my son's doing great. That's why I wanted to let you know. Yeah, They're calling because they're at the end of their rope. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things I often tell people is that if you're, this person that you care about and love so much, so long as they have a pulse, there's a chance. Yeah. When they're gone, it's tough to intervene, man. <laughs> and and I don't mean that to be funny.
0: I get you know. Yeah, no, I get it. And I get it.
1: When people are still with us, there is hope. When they're gone, so my point being that when someone is considering intervening, I consider intervention one of the most Extreme acts of unconditional love you can ever, even though the person does not see it at the time, yeah. they do not see it. And, and by the way, the addict or the alcoholic, they're not seeing the world clearly, anyways. Yeah. That's why the family is reaching out because they are seeing it clearly. Yeah. Honey, you are. This is killing us, and it's killing you. And so, to finish to finish my point, and that is to, wouldn't you have at least preferred to have tried? I know a lot of families who are like Todd. You you. This is not about being crystal ball because it's life or death thing, but it's like left untreated, this is going to most likely end up bad. Get worse. Absolutely. So at least try. Yeah. I think there's a great deal of peace. I think, and you know, we tried everything.
0: Yeah. We did. So try. Yeah. Yeah, and for the families, you know, um, out there that are listening to this, I mean, Todd's experience is invaluable. You know, um, with the hope that you bring through your interventions to the families that are suffering. You can only do so much, you know, and the, eventually the client has to be willing at some point to go ahead and say, Yeah, I messed up. I need help. Um, what do you think about that process? Yeah. You know, uh, often we, we, often when we intervene,
1: um, I, sh- I should first say that intervention is more than 90% successful. Now, that does not guarantee, I'm going to say 90%, your, your loved one gets clean and sober. Yeah. But we are generally very successful in getting them into the care, the right level of care that the individual needs to address whatever is going on mm-hmm. with them. My take on in treatment centers are not all the same. And I know, for instance, that Balboa Horizons is a very good one. I have experience with you guys, and you guys do good work. Yeah. Really good work. Thank you. And, um, and I don't send people to places that do subpar or just average work. Yeah. The family is entrusting a great deal in you. They're going all in with you to guide them through a process that is very, very confusing. Mm-hmm. Very foreign, confusing, everybody is scared. Everybody has anxiety and fear and all of these things. And it's my job as, an, as the interventionist to help manage this crisis and to walk them through the fear and anxiety that's just absolutely owning them. Yeah. Okay? And um, so, I don't know
0: if I answered that very well or not. Uh, no, it was perfect. It, do you have any examples for us on, I know you can't name any names, but any interventions that seemed a bit out of control, that you had to kind of wrangle in? You know, one of the,
1: done. I mentioned a minute ago that, that done correctly, intervention is more than 90% successful. I need to further that by first saying that, my hope is that when the individual finally gets a little bit of clarity in their head because there's so much, there's a lot of fight or flight going on with the person. That, that owns them. There is fear. There is, they're, they're under great uh, distress when they're being intervened upon. But when you come at it at a, at a loving and calm approach, you're able to generally win out. Okay. Absolutely. Now, to come back to any situations that are out of control, first, one of the most common things I get is, hey, is it like the show A&E Intervention? No, it's not. <laughs> you know, that's so dramatized, and and, um, and I should say that... Um, but there are tears. Oh my God, Kleenex is mandatory yeah. at, at both the pre-intervention and the intervention. The, the person that is in the disease needs to see everyone's hearts on their sleeves. All these people who are gathered who love this person, who wants to see yeah. them get help, I encourage anyone who is involved in the intervention to show what's really happening with them. Yeah. That person needs to see how affected they are. This is not a time to man up and to be, whoa, I gotta be strong, are you kidding? The tears have gotta flow. Yeah. And uh, my job is always to keep insanity in check the best I can because things can get very verbal. Yeah. The anger level, especially from the addict, uh, uh, the one who's, who is sick, can be off the charts and so one of the things that we have to do is to keep them at a level that is manageable Yeah. the moment that we engage
0: with anger we've, we lose for sure for sure and I have an experience with myself um, back in 1998 um, I was in my Volkswagen bus 72 bus awesome I, I love those cars tearing the thing apart completely out of my mind on crystal meth and uh, I was just out of control I was 18 years old losing my mind and in this bus I had a family member come in, my cousin. Out of all people, he wouldn't have been, like, I wouldn't have thought that this guy would have come in my bus. And, but he was like, you know what? We love you. And I know what you're doing. And you need to stop. And for some reason, it, I, I mean, the, the hairs are standing up on my, my arm right now. I felt that. I can feel it right now. It hit my heart. Even though I was out of my mind on methamphetamine, I felt it and that meant so much that someone else cared about me because addicts uh, if you know you know I'm an addict we tend to beat ourselves up a lot do you see that a lot oh my gosh I'm glad that, and I'm glad that you
1: mentioned that you know first and foremost uh, when the person when someone is in the thralls of the disease they're they're completely blocked off from love they're blocked off from from all the good stuff in life and, it's, and so when that family member approached you, that person was seeing a situation very clearly because I assure you, you weren't. No. That does not mean that you did not know that you weren't sick. Yeah. Because I knew for years, for instance, that I was owned by something that was so much bigger than me. For sure. And I despised myself. Yeah. You mentioned, you know, we beat ourselves up. To the umpteenth degree, we, um, we have our self-esteem is at an all-time low our view of ourself is is just completely masked and, and we're, we're in a world of delusion. Yeah. And so uh, I, to this day as a sober person, can still beat myself up and, and it, it could be, it's one of those things. That's why I'm glad we have places we can talk to people and share what's really going on with us because now that we're sober, we're so freaking
0: sensitive. <laughs> it's true, the sensitive emotions come out uh, once you start using, because um, you've been repressing those for so many years and then once you get sober, Everything kind of floods. That that floodgate comes out. Oh yeah, I've always I've, I've always compared it to
1: like uh, we live our lives in this big emotional blender, and for years we've suffocated ourselves with drugs and alcohol, and the blender's kind of churning around. We go into treatment, we start to get you know feelings back, and the lid comes off that blender, and the thing is thrown on high, and things are just flying. Flying, out. and I freaking cried so much in my first year. Unresolved grief, trauma stuff, things I had not remembered since I was a kid. Things that I needed to do a lot of work around yeah. in order to
0: get back on track. For sure. So when when a client comes into treatment at Balboa Horizons, we often get that early stage of what you just described. You know that that raw emotional state where our therapists and our counselors and case managers can can kind of mold them into becoming the person that they're always meant to be. And to see that process and you being at the beginning of it, it's amazing, it's beautiful. Um, where do you think addiction is headed today? Hmm. Boy, what? well,
1: uh, it's a random question. I no, just, no, 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 uh, you, you didn't stifle me here. That's <laughs> just such a loaded question that uh, there's a lot to it. Uh, First and first and foremost is, you know, the stuff that's out there is more potent than ever, and it's more available than ever, and more people are dying than ever. I don't see that changing. Yeah. I don't. I don't see it changing anytime soon. The education and awareness piece needs to be impressed upon people at a younger age. Back in the day, they were talking to us in high school. I'm sorry, but that's too late. <laughs> I'm sorry we had a drug dog come in in fifth grade well I speak at schools man and when I'm talking to high schoolers it's like no disrespect to high schoolers I love them because I, I, I was in their shoes once but the truth truth be told they don't want to hear much yeah because most of them are on their iPhone just waiting to go to whatever is going down uh, after school anyway absolutely getting to people younger I think is, is absolutely imperative I'm actually in the process of of, of uh, creating a, an app called Higher Ground App. You can check it out highergroundapp.com, and it's it's being developed to uh, help educate young people. It's an incentivized learning program to help young people make uh, better choices and to learn from the maybe the poor choices they make during the exploratory part of this application. So I see, you know, you mentioned where's addiction going. It's not going anywhere. It's here to stay, but what we do need to share with people is that first and foremost, that there is help. Yeah. There is help out there, but then there needs to be more. Absolutely. There needs to be more help because there's a lot of people that I, that I unfortunately cannot help because they either don't have resources or, or, or decent health insurance. And you try to get into state programs like Red Gate or the Rock Center or these Southern places. Army. Yeah,
0: and, and those places are often full. Yeah. And the waiting list kills them. Yeah, well, I've heard actually recently that the waiting list for the Salvation Army, they don't have one. There's empty beds. So there's something happening in our industry that's either diverting people or where are people getting treatment, you know? I, I have a
1: take on that. The Salvation Army has saved a lot of lives. And that's, from what I understand, it's like a year, it's a year program. It's Christian-based. There's. I, I hate to say this, but I'm going to. I think... There's so many younger people in treatment today, and uh, I, I work on the front lines of this thing. And I gotta tell you, there's so much entitlement going on. Yeah. And that when in Salvation Army is a bare bones, brass tacks, no screwing around. You've got to be accountable in that thing. And me, I, I don't know if people are just used to nicer places. I, I don't, I don't, I don't be so bold to say that. Yeah.
0: But. Well, and I think part of it may be because what's happening in the court system. So now, whereas like when back when we were using drugs or alcohol, um, you'd get, you know, the police officer would pull you over. You're going to jail if you were under the influence. Mm-hmm. Or, or you're, you know, if you're just walking down the street and they stop you and say, hey, we're taking you in because you're, you're not right. Um, whereas now they're just giving tickets. Oh, gosh, yeah, there, there needs to be more
1: diversion. Uh, and, and, and I'm a big believer in that there's a huge, amount of the population that's incarcerated that shouldn't be, yeah. that they should be in uh, court mandated treatment because these people leave with no skills, with without the, um, you know, they leave being in lockdown or in jail and they just go right back out to using and stuff like that. Yes. I think that there's a way that we could get thousands and thousands of people help who need it, who should not really be in jail or
0: prison. Yeah, no, I agree with that completely. Um, what the opioid crisis has done, at least here in Orange County, is um, it's put a, a bad light on our industry, you know, and for us doing good, um, it's hard for us to negotiate and navigate those those um, subtleties that are happening in our industry. And and being able to help as many people as possible would be amazing. But, I mean, how do you feel once you help someone and then you see them, you know, a year or two years later and they're clean, sober, they got... A sparkle in their eye and they're, you know, they're sober, they're doing the deal. Um, for me that's what's gratifying about my job, you know, uh, I get to see that on a daily basis. So with that said, you know, Balboa Horizons, um, we inspire change and transform lives, that's what we're about and if we're not able to do that with the way the things are going on in the industry, it's hard to, it's, it's hard to, to be able to help those people, you know. Yeah. Did yeah. that make sense at all? Well, it
1: it, it it did, and it does. You know, there's there's a uh, there's a lot of facilities out there who do great work. Yeah. There's also a lot out there who don't. Yeah. And there's a lot of people who are using people as almost um, slave tools or pawns in a financial game, which is uh, absolutely heartbreaking. I, I mean, just when I thought that I'd heard it all, you know and you guys already probably know this, but situations where you have individuals who are paying people to go in the treatment and paying them to get loaded and just recirculate. And mm-hmm. recirculate. And I believe the insurance companies are onto that now. Mm-hmm. They're no longer paying for 15 treatments in a year. They're, yeah. they're capping things out and doing better to manage these places and pay for places that are doing the wrong thing. For sure. I, I know for certain that, that your facility does things by the book and you guys are very rigid about that, and you guys aren't doing body brokering and BS like that, the stuff that, it, it's a real um, bad mark. on For people trying to do this thing for the right reasons, yeah. treatment you know, treatment is, it's a legitimate business for people operating it legitimately. Absolutely. For the people who are just the Johnny-come-latelys, the, the guy with nine months sober who scores money from his parents to open a treatment facility, dude, you have no business opening one. Yeah. You haven't even gone through the recovery process yourself. Sure. No offense, but you don't have any business on your treatment. You have, you have no idea how, how to make it run right. Sorry. Yeah. But you don't.
0: I am, I'm, I'm steadfast on that, man. Yeah. You know? For sure. <laughs> so let's talk about, so you, you in the beginning you mentioned that you go into schools. You go into colleges. Um, what's your schedule like this year? I mean, are you going anymore? more? I'm still tired from the fall. Kind <laughs> of I think I hit seventeen or nineteen
1: co- colleges in the in the Midwest and the East Coast, and um, you know, it's it's a. What are you seeing out there? I'm seeing that everyone that I talk to, you know, one of the questions I always like to ask the audience is, these young people who um, I ask them, you know, do you guys either know someone who's struggling with with substance use disorder, or you know, some, someone someone you've lost because of it. I'd say about eighty-five percent of the kids raise their hands, wow. and this is in the front of hundreds of people. Yeah. So what I see is, and we talked about it a second ago, is where is addiction going? It's like we're at a very unique time here uh, in our country. Never has there been the availability of narcotics that are so potent and so deadly. Uh, and there's so here's the thing is that there's so much money, and a lot of this stuff is now being manufactured in China. You've got your uh, illegal manufacturing of the fentanyl. It's being laced with the heroin and the pills, and, and now it's even being late, the fentanyl's being thrown in with cocaine. Yeah. Listen, nobody wants fentanyl with their cocaine. Yeah. They they don't. Yeah. And so these criminals
0: who are doing this, um, it, it it's it's sad. Yeah, it is sad. And and now they're trying to pass legislation to get uh, is it naloxon that that prevents the opiates from attacking the brain and like prevents the overdose mm-hmm. over the counter. I think that would be amazing, um, but at the same time, I, I, I think it might be sending the wrong message. Like, hey, it's okay to use this stuff. Yeah. Yeah, as long as you have this backup plan. We are we are
1: today. We are so fixed on the quick fix. Yeah. On we're a society that is riddled with impatience. Everything's okay. got to get done now, and I want to be fixed now. Oh, there's a pill or a something I can have uh, implanted in me that's going to fix me from my addiction. No, it's not. Yeah. But I will say this. Um, I will say this. If it's gonna prevent you from dying in a hotel room with a needle in your arm, I'm all for it. However, however what's unfortunate is that we're talking about a very short-term fix for a long, uh, what I call a short-term solution for a problem that's not going anywhere. Yeah. And there's no easy solution for that except getting help. Well, going through the process. There is an easy solution. You just said it, and it, and it's um it's stripping yourself down and making yourself vulnerable and and being able to say the, the hardest words anyone who suffers from this can ever say is I don't know how to do this. I need some help. Yeah. It was hard for me, it, despite how sick that I was. I still thought that maybe I could figure things out, but I just got I got wrapped up by
0: some good people. <laughs> Why do you think that is? Why, why do you think we uh, manipulate things like that and always looking for another solution or another way out, or another back door? I think that a lot of it has to do with a, a false sense of pride and ego.
1: And for so long, uh, I know that I can only speak from my experience or I can know I can speak from what I see. And that is for so long, people have just run on self. Yeah, they've done things their own way, his or her own way for so long. And you know alcoholism and and addiction progressively worsens yeah it progressively worsens and so in time we're left with like we either choose a different path or we're probably going to die yeah and it's tough for all those years and years that we've run on our own ideas to be like wait a minute wait marvin you may know something better Mm -hmm. because the first thing that comes to my mind is okay this is an authoritative figure I hate authority. I, I actually do to this day. I fall in line with it better today. Yeah. But most people who are who are alcoholics and addicts, they they do not like to be told what to do ever. <laughs> Can anybody relate? It's true, man. Um, but setting that aside and, and allowing something, um, people who have gone before us, yeah, to maybe impress upon us what needs to happen. It's actually a beautiful thing. In fact, that's that spills
0: over into something called humility. Yeah. I, I've been humbled by this disease big time. Oh, absolutely, I have myself. Um, I'll just tell you a quick story. When I got sober, I went to an a- outside AA meeting. I was in the Salvation Army, so they took us outside and I went to this meeting in Seal Beach and I was sitting outside on the ground, drinking my cup of coffee, you know, having a good time by myself, isolating, just like I should be, right? Um, and this guy comes up over to me and he kicks me. He kicks me in my butt. And I look up like, who the hell's kicking me? And he said, get in and get in the meeting and sit down. And uh, for some reason, I said, okay. Because mm-hmm. now I, I was out. All, all my ideas got me to that point, And now I had someone else tell me, hey, maybe you should come inside. It was more of a, a was like, you're going of love <laughs> absolutely Actually. absolutely and your I, head could tell you different no i agree with you 100 and but for me you know i was i was 19 years old and uh to have someone do that it just showed me that there's other people out there that actually cared oh my
1: gosh I, i'm glad that you brought that up in fact i can speak to that um i think i was maybe only six or seven months sober and and i'm i'm uh i'm thankful to this very day there's a group of men and Laguna Beach, who literally um, blanket, blanketed me, wrapped me up with love. Yeah, I didn't use that word very well. <laughs> um, but these guys, um, they loved me, and uh, they tolerated me. I was very sick, yeah. very sick. And I can remember I was at this men's meeting on the beach. I strongly recommend anyone who's new and recovered to to stick to gender-only meetings. That's just me. But, but men's meetings saved my life. And I can recall uh, sitting there, uh, very twisted, very, very twisted man. And it was a simple pat of a guy. This guy that was really well loved and very well respected. He's one of the leaders, if you want to call it, just one of the pillars of, of the group. That simple patting on the back made me feel a part of something, hmm. because I, I still. Can do that self-isolation. Self-isol- yeah. I could be like, you know what? I don't need this anymore. I'm so uncomfortable. It's <laughs> never going to get better. In fact, that's another thing. Is it's always important for us to tell the new people that you're going to be okay. Because yeah. I, sh- their heads, we have these heads that say nothing is okay. Yeah, it's never going to get okay. For sure. And we, it's our responsibility
0: to share that with them. Yeah. And I think as a, as a treatment center, you know, Babylon Horizons, I think it's our job. To help people see that for themselves, you know, through the therapy that they get, and the hope that comes along with just being able to say, "Hey, I'm not alone. There is people just like me going through the same kind of situations." I think that's that's foundational for for any kind of treatment. Well, that's huge. That's why you guys have got a phone number eight three three not alone. I mean, that's a good plug in.
1: and and <laughs> you know, nobody knows aloneness like people who've suffered with alcoholism and addiction yeah um, and, and it's a it's an awful scary fe- place that's just loaded with fear and when people can impress upon the one who's sick share with them that they can get better and it will get better you need yeah. I needed to hear those words continually yeah. I wasn't like riding high floating around yeah. at six months sober For I was sure. still very much um, just very cloudy up here
0: very sick and very scared yeah all the time i think i think a lot of people are in recovery i know i sure was um so let, let's wrap this thing up so you don't want to go for like another hour i mean we can be here all day but i mean i've just been watching you get I'm behind you, you yeah want a no big I... wave coming over yeah 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 no <laughs> l- l- let's talk let's wrap up what's going on um so talk to me so you got someone out there that's struggling that they've been using cocaine, heroin, meth, whatever drug that they've been using, they've lost all hope, what would you say to them? What would you say to that person that was just like you or just like me struggling to get sober and just didn't know what to do?
1: I I think that telling a person who's, who's sick that that, that there's a, there's a different way. There's a different way, and there is a way out of the way that you're living. However, it cannot be done alone. It can't be done alone. You can't, for instance, put down the drugs and the alcohol, go home and kick on the couch, watch Netflix for two weeks, and emerge a new human being. Hmm. I'm I'm a big believer in a quality treatment center for the following reason. It keeps the person safe from themselves while they start to learn a little bit more about this disease a little bit more about themselves gotcha. and about some coping skills as to how to combat this thing that will ultimately it kills all of us yeah but but how i'd say it first though is i always like to tell people i love you man i tell straight hey man i love you dude told a new guys a few weeks ago hey man we don't know each other but i freaking love you i want to see you get well i need to say that i think i've got a responsibility to
0: share that with people absolutely Todd, it's been a pleasure having you on our show. I appreciate everything that you're doing for our community and for addicts and alcoholics who still suffer. Your story of, of uh, addiction and the recovery process that you've gone through is inspiring many thousands of people across the country, and, and I truly appreciate your time here, and thank you. Well, thanks, Marvin, for having me. And if, uh, if
1: anyone, anyone wants to get a hold of me, you can check me out on my website. It's Todd Zulkins, uh, Zalkins, Z-A-L-K-I-N-S, toddzalkins.com, If you ever want to reach out and just talk, phone number is on the website, and uh, we'd love to hear from you. Thank you for having me, and uh, keep up the good work that uh, Balboa Horizons uh, does for so many. Thank you, Tom. All right, man. Thank you.